The key to subverting Valentine's Day is to not spend money. We make quesadillas every Valentine's Day because that's what we did our first Valentine's Day. We refuse to spend money because it is a corporate capitalist trap. And now the real fun of it is figuring out Valentine's, like what we're going to give for our kids. <laughs> so like the older one's really into space and the yeah. younger one loves dogs. And so I'm like, this is easy. Space dogs. <laughs> no, we're going to make them two different Valentines. But the older one, it'll be like, you're out of this world, planet, planet, yeah. star. And then yeah. the other one will be like a picture of a dog and be like, you're possible. It's so easy. And that's delightful. <laughs> like this is exactly what I want Valentine's Day to be. Or space dogs. I mean, just put it, just putting it on the table. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Hey, Liz. How's it going? Good. The world has changed again. Oh, it has changed again. Yeah. Our podcast schedule is what we can manage, but it makes it so that every time we talk, it's way too far removed from the thing we want to talk about. <laughs> That's exactly right. We're going to talk about Kobe three weeks after the fact. Oh my gosh. And yeah. we are also going to talk about, we're talking about the Oscars. The Oscars when we're recording is recent history, but by the time this episode comes out, we'll be like pretty distant. Yeah. We're already irrelevant. <laughs> this news cycle, man. Just can't keep up. But 2020, 2020 is at it again. It is. So what are you thinking about? What's top of mind for you? Well, the Oscars, right? The last oh time God. in our last episode, I think we ended off saying we hope Parasite wins. We, we did. were looking forward to a really fun ceremony. And I don't have as much history with this as you do. We were chatting throughout the thing. Mm -hmm. And you seem to think that this was one of the higher production value Oscars that we've had in recent or distant memory. Yeah. This was the best telecast I can remember in the last decade, maybe. Wow. What do you think set it apart? They had a murderer's row of presenters and performers, I feel like. The first 20 minutes, I think, was the strongest 20 minutes of an award show that I've maybe ever seen. It was very crisp. That's what it, I realized. And it was just like hit after hit after hit, right? Mm -hmm. We started with that Janelle, that bonkers Janelle Monet performance where she, yeah. it was commanding, mm -hmm. incredible, with a Billy Porter feature, which I loved. And I realized that he's a Tony winner for Kinky Boots, but I've actually never heard him sing. Mm. And that was incredible. Loved all that. Right into Steve Martin and Chris Rock, who did a great not host monologue. Yeah. And then right into the Queen Regina, Regina King, right into Brad Pitt giving like a lovely, touching speech in which he was appeared to be like genuinely moved by the whole moment. And he won. I loved it. And he, yes, yes, exactly. His acceptance speech was beautiful i thought yeah so the first 20 minutes just had a great pace to it i hadn't seen the oscars in a while so i was i came in and i was entertained right off the bat mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah what other things did you like about the ceremony i agree with everything that you said i thought janelle monet was fabulous and fantastic i liked will ferrell and julia dreyfus yes they and maya rudolph and kristen wig kristen wig great they were funny cynthia erivo's performance oh my gosh dynamite Oh my gosh. Dynamite. Her stage presence was just, you used the word commanding earlier. I mean, she didn't even move. She was literally no. an Oscar statue. Yeah. She was entrancing. And she just commanded the entire room. I thought yeah. she was fantastic. Yeah. Incredible. If, not, if not Janelle Monet, she had the performance of the night, I think. 
Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Those. So those are the moments. And then, of course, Parasite. <sighs> Parasite. I mean, where do I even begin? You know, I think it started with him winning Best Screenplay. That's when you knew that things were going to be interesting because Tarantino was supposed to win that one. So the fact that he really? won it, it was like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I didn't know that. I knew that 1917 and Parasite were the two front runners for the best picture. Mm-hmm. I knew that Parasite was going to probably win for international feature. Yes. Uh-huh. That was a shoe in The director, I was fully expecting to go to Sam Mendes. Right. Right. Because Sam Mendes won the Director's Guild Award, right? Which has predicted the Oscar for like years and years and years. And everything I've heard of 1917 was that it was this directorial cinematic achievement, right? It technically advanced and innovated or something. I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to that. I've known other people who've watched it who agree with that assessment. Mm -hmm. So for that alone, I thought that Sam Mendes was going to win director. And I think that when Parasite won screenplay, I was happy. I was. I can't say I was surprised because I didn't know the backstory of the Quentin Tarantino. It was like this was going to be Tarantino's consolation prize because he wasn't going to win Best Picture or Best Director. So gotcha. they'll throw him a bone for Best Original Screenplay. When he won screenplay, it felt like the consolation prize for Pong Juno. That's how I took it. Mm, got you, got mm-hmm. you, got you. Okay, okay. And then they won International Feature, which, you know, I was, of course, happy but not surprised. Right. It's when he won director that my jaw dropped. And then I thought, wait, is this really going to happen? Could this happen? Okay, so going into the night, what were your honest percentages between 1917 and Parasite? What percentage would you have given each one to win? So I think 1917 was the front runner, but I feel like as the date got closer and closer, I heard more and more of Parasite could be the upset. More and more people were saying that. And so I was like, I don't know. I feel like it was maybe like a 60-40. 60-40. Not as likely, but not an outside chance. If I could describe the chatter leading Mm -hmm. up to it, Mm -hmm. it seemed like most film critics were resigned to 1917, but wanted Parasite to win. That's exactly right. That's how I took it. Yes. Because they were thinking the Academy is this one stale, old white man. They never make the right choice. Love war movies. Exactly. And, you know, for good reason, right? Yeah. Green Book won last year. Right. That's the context here. And when Pong Juno won for Best Director, I mean, his speech also conveyed that he was surprised. Yes. So he really didn't expect, I think, to win the director. Right. Yeah. And okay, if that's true, let's take that hypothesis. He didn't expect to win. I didn't expect him to win. Mm-hmm. And yet he gave probably his best speech oh in the director God. win. What a gracious, wonderful speech that was. It was so good. It was so good. The tribute he made to Scorsese and then also to Tarantino as well. I was like, oh, God, what a good speech. He definitely has a way of saying things that are very, very cutting Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a disarming way, but in a concise way as well. Yeah. And there's no ego when he says yes. them, right? So when he says things like, you know, at the Golden Globes, don't let a one-inch subtitle keep you from all of these amazing films. It didn't feel condemning. It felt inviting. It felt like an invitation. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like somebody bitter that not enough people are watching his movie. Exactly. And that's the affect that he gives off, right? And I th- I'm also thinking about the thing he said about the shift from the title of the award from Best 
foreign language feature. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I loved that. And it's not something that I even really registered or thought about what the shift necessarily meant. Uh-huh. But he made me think about it and think, yeah. you know, like, why is he welcoming this? Why is he supportive of this? And it, it, yeah, it's like definitely a small, subtle, but significant shift. Yeah, I agree. It strikes me as a, a mind that doesn't miss out on the details. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's reflected in his movies, right? Yeah. And can we give it up for the translator to Sharon Choi? Oh, man, who apparently is a director in her own right. And is working on a movie about award season, which I love. Can't wait to watch it. Sharon Choi, I'm going to watch the shit out of your movie. Yeah. I can't wait. I mean, when's the last time a translator got this much praise and fandom out of a performance? I love it. I love it so much. It wasn't just the composure. It was her discretion. If you notice that there were times where she didn't translate everything he said, you know, because she was mindful of the time. I think when he was giving his shout out to Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. everybody was giving the standing ovation. So she didn't really say anything. She had the foresight not to really step on that. And yeah, just yeah, step yeah, back yeah. And let it happen, you know? Right, right, just, right. Just aware. Just aware. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So that's my little shout out to Sharon Choi. So yeah, after they won for Best Director, I was more at 80-20, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. At that point, getting to watch the wave of momentum happen... At that point, I was like, oh, I think they're going to win Best Picture. Oh, yeah, at that point. But going into the night, you said you were 60-40. I was 80-20 sure that 1917 was going to win. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, despite okay. what I've read and despite the momentum that Parasite had, yeah. I just thought that the Oscars would be like, here, this Oscar goes to this international movie. We're just going to give the Oscar for the international right, right, right. feature it, film. It will have gotten its due there. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's not going to give it two Oscars. Right. And then when it won... Wow. My mom and I, we called each other and we were so happy. And she's talking about like, what a small country and it does this. Like, it was a very proud moment. Oh, that's very yeah. sweet. That's very sweet. Yeah. And what I loved is that like the whole auditorium was totally excited about this, right? Like, you oh, could yeah. feel it that like they were also on Parasite's side. Just seeing how excited the whole crowd was for it was wonderful. Like what right. a beautiful moment that was. And that that's one of those spontaneous Oscars moments that we might remember from years later is that after one of the producers, the co-producer gave her speech, they mm-hmm. dimmed the lights and shifted mm-hmm. to Jane Fonda. But there was another person who we now know was the executive producer or sort of a titan in the South, South Korea film industry. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks and the entire front row of stars was like, you know, lights Raise on, the light. lights on. Raise yeah. the lights. And they, they successfully did it. Yeah. And she gave a really funny speech, I thought. It was, I was like, are you in love with, are you in love with him? <laughs> Is this your Valentine to him? What's happening right now? Right. It was so, it, it was funny. I mean, I was kind of cringing. I was like, who is this lady? <laughs> oh, seriously. You know, like she doesn't seem like she's in any kind of rush right now. Mm-hmm. But it ended up being a pretty funny and memorable speech. And it was just a nice moment. It was Tom Hanks and like the front row. of Charlie Theron. Yeah. Kind of advocating, again, kind of supporting the South Koreans and just really yeah. getting on their side. So it was a heartwarming moment. Yeah. I think that this whole feeling Parasite's momentum throughout the whole night go up and up and up. I think that's in my top five Oscar moments now. Oh, it's it immediately supplants my last week's list. This is my number one Oscar moment of all time. <laughs> all irrelevant. All irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. 
sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. Ellen. I think you, Ellen Ellen was my number five. Yeah, so I Justin think Ellen Timberlake. Justin Timberlake got bumped, and I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> I mean, this is for me my number one moment. It was just such an exciting moment, and I'm really happy to have shared it with. I was chatting with you, but also all these Korean people that were like celebrating it online. All my like Korean relatives that I have on Facebook, they were all celebrating it. It was great. Ah, oh, I love it. All right. Were there what were the things that you thought were like weird or like out of place or you didn't like as much about the evening? Yeah, it became very clear that we've reverted back to Oscar so white. I mean, this is despite, of course, Parasite's win. Mm-hmm. That aside, I felt really that, you know, again, I think was Cynthia Rivo was the was was she the only candidate of color to be nominated for an acting award? Yes. I thought that was a shame, especially four years removed from Oscar So White and all this talk about progress being made. Just to see that was kind of disheartening. And then the juxtaposition between that and all of the performers being people of color, and they were mm-hmm. all fantastic, of course. Mm-hmm. But it begs the question, how are people of color being invited into this Oscar space? Yes. Yes. As the entertainers of the entertainer. Yeah. So I felt like that was, that kind of took the um, veneer off the, the night for me. Yeah. And once you start looking at things with that lens, you can't unsee. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I loved it. Truly, I think one of the most entertaining telecasts of the last 10, 15 years. But the nagging sense that the Oscars is doing what it always does when it's accused of not being inclusive enough is that it packs its ceremony full of presenters and performers of color to make them look inclusive when we all can see that the nominations all go to white people. So it's like, we'll use people of color to make us look better than we actually are. We'll let you entertain us, but we won't recognize your work in the way that really matters. You know what'd be really interesting is if the entertainers all got together and said, we won't, like, if we see another nomination, nominee list like that, we're all just going to pull out. That would be interesting. That was what I was wondering. I was like, what? Because it's very hard for people of color to say no to this situation, right? Because it's a huge honor. It's like a huge opportunity. You're on the stage before millions of people who otherwise might not get to see your work, especially because Hollywood is so white, right? It's like this weird, like, self-perpetuating thing. So I 100% understand why Janelle Monae took this job, why yeah. all of these people who were invited to introduce other presenters, I was so con- like Kelly Marie Tran introduced a presenter who introduced nominee. You know what I mean? Like this whole Russian doll situation of presenters that was happening. <laughs> I think it was they were like, we need to open as many slots as possible for people of color. I yeah. totally understand why people said yes to that. But at the same time, at what point does it become worth it for people of color to be like, yo, we're just not going to participate in your show until you start recognizing. And speaking of Kelly Marie Trent, she got a lot of screen time. She got a lot of screen time, which was also a little bit confusing because she has not been in anything in a while. So <laughs> know, like, right? on one hand, I'm like, okay, I guess you get a cookie for recognizing an Asian American actress. But I feel like you chose her because you have so few other Asian American actresses to choose from. That you're like, yo, Kelly Marie Tran, you haven't been in anything in a minute, but like, here we go. You know, they saw her like bobbing, you know, she was bobbing along to Eminem. Can we talk about Eminem for a second? Why was he here? That was my other big question. I mean, I'm not going to complain. I think I thought it was a great performance, but why was he there? Completely a question mark because it's not even like the 20th anniversary of Eight Miles nominations. It, it was the 17th anniversary. That is a significant anniversary. Is 17th anniversary? His movie could be tried as an adult. I guess that's what it means. <laughs> 
It was an odd moment. It was. And no one knew what to do with him. I mean, it was such a, a genuine surprise for me. Oh, yeah. But I was like, why are you here? What is the point right. of this? And like, again, the whole Russian doll situation where they had Anthony Ramos introduce Lin-Manuel Miranda, introduce a film <laughs> montage, introduce Eminem. It was just, what? what is this for? It was bananas. Right. What did you think about Joaquin Phoenix's speech? Ah, God. Can we talk about this for a second? Yes, please. The best actor and actress speeches, both of them, were just so many words in search of a message. Yeah. (laughs) That was true of Renee Zellweger's speech, just something about coming together and just repeating the words. Joaquin Phoenix had a very specific message about artificial cow insemination but that was also couched in a lot of inclusivity and progress and coming together language i appreciate the message i don't want to diminish it animal rights activists Mm -hmm. and all that it's just it was i thought okay so joaquin came in and i think he was harping on mostly climate change stuff leading up to the oscars i think not even he blew up the baptas about the lack of representation he did actually an excellent speech there oh really okay so I think people were hoping that he would bring that same heat to the Academy, but he did not, which I kind of understand the BAFTAs are safe because it's not televised and it's like not on your own soil and the Academy is the Holy Grail, right? So you're really going to do that in a speech to the Academy? No. And Joaquin is like a animal rights have long been his pet cause. So that's fine. But what the hell was that speech? (laughs) Ditto Renee. I was like, I don't, I mean, all of her speeches have been bonkers, but. I, yeah, I was like, this is not this is not the way to end your season of glory. Yeah. So the, the supporting actor and actresses actress speeches were fantastic and exactly the right notes. And then yeah. we just like ended the night with these like whack a mole. <laughs> Where are we going with this? It makes me appreciate again Pung Juno's speeches, which yes. were concise, thoughtful, to the point. And yes. that's this is with you know a translator too. It's not an easy thing to pull off. Yes, yes. And I just want to say that all of the other Asian Pacific Islander winners gave fantastic speeches. Taika Waititi gave beautiful shouts to indigenous folks. Kazuhiro, who won for Best Makeup, gave this like beautiful tribute to Charlie Theron, who who was just just so like visibly shocked and touched by it. Wonderful speeches. Yes. And I would like to revise my male celebrity crush list. (laughs) We're amending all of the lists today. To, to include Taika, oh. Mahershala Ali. Oh, so handsome. Those two. Those two are going on my list next to Idris yeah. Elba. Okay. Yeah. I respect that. Taika, Taika especially is just like, he's handsome. He's so smart. He's so funny. He directs. He acts. He writes. I, that's, I fully support that. And I think it's pretty clear that if given another shot, Brad Pitt is also on my list. But <laughs> we'll have to revisit that another time. <laughs> What an what an Oscars! I mean, it did not disappoint. It lived to the no. hype. Such entertainment out of a problematic production. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, unfortunately, it's like it's all time lowest ratings, which yeah. I kind of get. I get, but you know, for those of us who watched, it was a great show. I was sad to see that too because I think that, and you, you're going to have to let me know if I'm off base here. It just seemed like this was a consequential Oscars compared to most. It was a consequential Oscars. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. So in addition to all of the excitement about the Oscars, which I consumed voraciously, another thing that I consumed this week was a podcast episode 
that two different friends from different periods of my life sent to me. It was a collaboration from Code Switch and Death, Sex, and Money called What About Your Friends? We'll link it in our show notes. But it is about race and friendship. And I really wanted to talk about it with you, especially because you grew up in such a different racial context than I did. The episode covers a lot of ground. It you know, talks about a lot of research on intra-racial friendships. There are listener stories that the hosts ask experts to weigh in on. It's really good, and I highly recommend that people listen to it. But instead of talking about what happened in the episode, I wanted to ask you about your experiences around race and friendship. So are you game? Yes, I am game. It's such a great topic. I think one of the things in the episode that they came up with is that we talk a lot about interracial relationships, like romantic relationships, but Mm -hmm. we rarely ever have these conversations around interracial friendships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very profound point. And after listening to it, it did make me want to reflect a lot on uh, my friendships growing up, my friendships circles now. So I want to start from the beginning. What did your friend group look like when you were a kid? I grew up in Southern California, so a lot of Asian Americans, of course. And in a weird way, because of that, I really didn't see race because Mm -hmm. I was surrounded by people who looked exactly like me. I didn't perceive it myself as a minority because Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. So I was very much, I grew up with Asian Americans, just hung out with Asian Americans. And yeah, most of my social relationships were found through the church, which was a Korean-American church. Mm-hmm. High school to me was difficult, but again, because I didn't have that language for race, I didn't really understand what was happening to me when I was there. Mm-hmm. It was a, the, Despite being in Southern California, it was a predominantly white and Latinx school, mm-hmm. very small amount of Asians. It was an all-guy Catholic school as well. So yeah, we were very much in the minority And I remember being in school and being bullied and the Asians just kind of, there was this main quad area where everybody ate lunch. Mm -hmm. And there was this like, you know, separated place in front of like the nurse's office Mm -hmm. that was like way away from the quad. And that was like known as the Asian corner because there was Mm -hmm. like five of us eating lunch. There were no tables or no nothing. We're just like on a curb, basically Mm -hmm. eating lunch together. And again, you know, at that time, I should probably have made some kind of connection like, hey, there are these five Asians that are eating <laughs> lunch together every day, whereas everybody else is in the quad. But the quad was where you went to get bullied. Mm-hmm. So you didn't want to be there. So that's kind of like why, where we stuck out. So that was like high school. I don't have a lot of memories from high school. A lot of it because there were a lot of negative memories from high school. Mm-hmm. And then college was, was, again, I went to UCLA. So reconnecting and most of my friends were Asian American, if not all. Mm-hmm. And that's basically how I grew up. You. And what about for you? What did your, I guess, what did your friend group look like growing up? Because I imagine it was quite different than my experience. Yeah, it was really different. So my friend group was mostly white, which makes sense because I grew up in the Midwest. I do think it's important to say that they were not wasps. They were all white with an asterisk. So like half of my friends were Jewish and the rest were Armenian and Catholic. So they were white, but I feel like most of them had some sense of kind of like marginalized identity in some way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, especially after listening to this episode and hearing about, there's like a a vignette where this Asian American girl talks about how she's like, she was like tormented by her white friends in high school, I think is a really important because even though all of my friends were white, 
I feel like there was still a sense of we're all kind of outsiders and fringe people, you know? So yeah, I didn't feel like isolated necessarily, if that makes sense. Like I felt like we had common experiences in that way. Yeah. So the the vignette that you're referencing about the Asian girl who grew up, I think it was Minnesota Mm -hmm. and just being surrounded by white friends and she called her best friends her tormentors. God, that was so sad. Was it was so sad. sad to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Bringing up things to her friends about things like microaggressions or things that people have said to invalidate her. And their response was more like, why are you being so sensitive? Yeah. Is nothing Is nothing I say, is everything I say a problem to you? Mm-hmm. And making her feel like the one that was crazy or yeah. off or something was wrong with her. Yeah. And there was no one there to validate her experiences. And so she experiences what the theorists there call racial melancholia, which I thought was an interesting term that I've been thinking about. Anyways, so you're saying that with your friend group, they didn't do that, those kind of things to you. Not at all. And I, when I was listening to that story, I found myself asking myself, like, have I ever experienced racism or even like a microaggression at the hands of somebody that I considered a friend. And I honestly can't think of any, like God knows I experienced more than my share of both, but they were never from people that I considered friends. Yeah, And I feel like after listening to that story, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm lucky for that. And then I realized upon reflection that in elementary school, I had for a few years, I like hung out a lot with my neighbors who were Asian American. So there was like a brief period of time when I had a crew of like about like five, five of us that hung out together. But then like people went to different middle schools. So really, like most of my friends were white up until the middle of high school when my one Asian American friend at school invited me to go to church with her. And I went to this church, which was a Taiwanese immigrant church. And there was a high school ministry for the American born children. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that my racial identity was normal because as you could expect growing up in a context where everyone is white, I just, I had so much resentment for my Asian-ness, even though, you know, my friends were cool. I just still felt different all the time. Right. And like, no one could understand the way that my parents spoke to me or I spoke to my parents or the values that we had or the food that we ate, everything about me felt alien. And so being for the first time at 15 in a context where all those things were normal was revelatory. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting. So before you went to this church, Mm -hmm. were you able to name and understand that you felt these resentments or these anxieties or these emotions? Or was it when you walked in, you realized that you were harboring this and you never really, really fully knew that you were harboring it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I knew on some level because it was impossible not to know. So, I mean, my like racial awakening happened at five. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl asks me where I'm from. And I'm like, uh, Kalamazoo, which is the city in Michigan I was born in. And she was like, no, no, no. Where are you from? Like one of those moments, mm-hmm. right? Wow. Mm-hmm. In my little five-year-old mind, I was like, okay, something has tipped this girl off to the fact that I'm different. It's probably my face. I'm guessing it's my face. So like I spent the next 10 years desperately trying to run from this thing that made me different, right? Mm -hmm. So that meant that I became super loud and to the point of obnoxiousness 
both because I needed people to know that I wasn't so quiet, stereotypical Asian girl, but also so everyone could hear that I didn't have an accent. I was especially obnoxious in Chinese school because it was like the place where I was most reminded of this weird, different thing about me. And it was where I just like acted at all of those things. It was basically the antithesis of what I was in regular school. I was like super sensitive to like even the slightest mention of Asia or Asian. So I think I knew on some level that something was up, but I didn't have mm-hmm. any language for it because who was I going to process it with? No mm-hmm. one around me had language for it. My parents who came, who were immigrants from this racially homogenous country did not have language for it. I just, it was just me and all my feelings. Right. And it wasn't until I became a part of this youth group and suddenly felt normal that I was like, oh, it was the first time in my life that I didn't feel like I had to like fight this thing. Right. I could just, Mm -hmm. I could just accept it. And like, maybe it wasn't a bad thing. You know what I mean? And I could kind of come to terms with it a little bit and realize that it wasn't this weird, terrible thing that made me an aberration like it did at school. Yeah. So that was kind of like the, that's where the pendulum swing started. So like after that, I was like, this is fucking great. And then I did what a lot of people do. I think it's like a very common thing in racial identity development. It's like after you experience that, you just really lean into it. So pretty much from like the middle of high school through college, every new friend I made was Asian. And I went to a university that had a big enough Asian American community where I could do that. I could just like fully immerse myself in it and not make any white friends. Mm. And it was great. And I feel like that time of cocooning of sorts was super Mm. important in terms of helping me understand the breadth and depth and complexity of Asian America. And so kind of figure out what it meant for me and what I liked about it and what I didn't like about it and all of that. Because then, and then when I graduated, I chose to go to graduate school at a seminary, which then, you know, pendulum swings in the other direction. And then all my friends are white again. Well, that's not true. I have a pretty diverse friend group in, in seminary, but the institution itself is mostly white. Did you have to, I love this language of cocoon, by the way, when you came out of the uh-huh. cocoon mm-hmm. and you went to seminary, did you find that you had to relearn how to be in relationships with white people? Ah, that is an excellent question. I mean, in some ways, yes, superficially. I can't pick up the check every time because these white people are never going to hit me back. (laughs) Learned this the hard way my first quarter, and I was like, I am going to run out of money. Also because my entire experience of Asians was in Christian community, right? So a lot of things that I I thought that was like a Christian thing, you know what I mean? Fighting for the check. Mm -hmm. That that, but it's it's not. It's definitely an Asian thing. Is what I right. learned my first quarter in right. Aside from those superficial things, I felt like I, I'm very comfortable with white people for better and for worse. So that part didn't feel as I didn't feel like it was a huge adjustment. But I was I had a language for things now like microaggression that I didn't have before. And I also had a much stronger sense of my own identity where I could be around white people and not hate my Asian self. And that was very new. So it was nice to be able to be in white spaces and still feel like fully Asian American and feel like fully comfortable with that. That was novel at the time. Okay. So going back to you for a second. So Mm -hmm. since we've established that all of your friends from childhood were Asian, has there ever been a time when that wasn't the case? Yeah, definitely. When I went to New York, Mm -hmm. my objective was to diversify my friend group. Mm-hmm. There was a, at that point. There, I think I was twenty three, no, twenty four or twenty five at that point, uh-huh. where I was very conscious of the fact that all of my friends were Asian. Uh-huh. And so, going to New York, I made this conscious choice to build a very diverse friend group, and I did. I'm very proud of that. 
Mm-hmm. What did it feel like to you? Because it sounds like this was like the first time in your life when you had friends that weren't Asian. It felt exciting. Mom, a white friend. I have a white friend. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't. I still didn't make any white friends. <laughs> I found myself naturally gravitating towards minority groups. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whether that was conscious or not, I'm not sure. Okay. But I, it wasn't a big jump for me because I know that they know what it's like to have immigrant parents. Yes. So they may not be Asian, but it wasn't all that different. And it was also great because I learned a lot about different communities that I had no connections with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was hugely... So when I, met, I use the word exciting, that's what I meant. I was learning a lot while building these very, very lasting friendships. Friends that I consider one of my like closest friends even now. Hmm. And it's not just on race, but it's that's my first friends that I had that were LGBTQ, mm-hmm. that were from that were born abroad, that were that had different that were from different class statuses. Did I have all the language at the time? I did not, mm-hmm. but I knew that I was learning and I was becoming a better person through these friendships, uh-huh. and so that was exciting. But still, no white friends. Got you, because. I'm not sure, again, if that was a conscious thing. I think it could be a product of being in New York and the program that I was in. There weren't that many white people. Uh And fast forward to today, the only white friends that I consider super, super great friends now are all African. They're all from South Africa Mm -hmm. because I made all my, basically my entire quota of white friends are South African. Uh, (laughs) That's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Honestly, that you've like lived this long in America and have not had to make white friends. That's like kind of amazing, actually. How do you feel about that? Are you proud of that? No, not proud. I I feel like then truly what I know about white people Uh, is, (laughs) yeah, it's all hearsay. It's all academic textbooks on race. Mm -hmm. But here in DC, it's not like I they, I call them my friends, but these are white spaces. My my workplace is yeah, fairly you have, white. You have work. You have white coworkers, I imagine. Right, right, and I'm actually in embedded relationships with white people and their culture and the way they talk and all these things. It's like the first time. This job is the first time. This job is the first mm, time. Fascinating. Oh my god. I shouldn't say actually. I shouldn't say South African. All my white friends are all foreign born. So I have British white friends as well. Okay. Okay. Interesting. To add to my list. <laughs> Got you. So interesting. What you're describing, I feel like is such a Californian phenomenon. <laughs> it totally is. I remember when I was living in the Bay Area, I had two separate people, both mm. American women, tell me that they do not have white female friends. One of whom was like, I do not, I make a point not to make friends with white women. And I was like, coming from where I come from, I cannot fathom making that statement. Because in the Midwest, that would mean that I had no friends. The idea that you have the luxury of not having any white friends and only having so many people of color around you that you can make such a choice. I was like, that's bananas. This is a different universe here. Although interestingly, now that I've moved back to the Midwest... All of the friends that I have are Asian. All of them. Pretty much. I mean, Asians are Asian people married to white people. Pretty mm-hmm. much all the white people I know are mar- are in Asian families. Right. There's a few people from high school who I'm still connected to. But in terms of new people, they're all Asian. And I feel, 
I was trying to I was thinking about this when we were when I was preparing for the episode and I was like, why is that? And I think a lot of it is, you know, like similarities and common values and whatever, whatever. But honestly, these are the people who reciprocated the effort that I made. Mm, interesting. Because I am one of those people who tries, you know, and the people who most eagerly met and reciprocated the effort were Asian. And they have said the same things and that one of the, one of these friends told me recently, she was like, I realize now that I'm friends with y'all that the reason why it's so hard to be friend, make friends with white people is because they never made an effort with me. And I was like, mm. oh, that is super, super interesting, even in this liberal ass town. So yeah, I'm like, I have no shortage of interaction with white people. You know, my kid's preschool, I'm on the board there. Everyone is white. Everyone's super nice. I get along very well with white people, but in terms of actual friendships and like people who've made an effort, all Asian. And I really, yeah, I really appreciate how transparent you are because I think it could be hard for some people to acknowledge that they don't have white friends. Yeah, I, I, I'm still kind of on the fence whether it's a good thing or bad thing. I think if I really want to understand race, mm. what I think I know mm-hmm. is white culture and mm-hmm. white power structures Things like this. And sort of, I I understand very, very closely when people of color talk about navigating those spaces. Mm -hmm. I understand very, very clearly what it means to develop homogenous friends group, mostly as a survival mechanism, so you don't go crazy. Mm -hmm. I've been in conversations with those white people that are largely dismissive of things like microaggressions or our lived experiences. I've had experiences, direct experiences with that. But I think there is a shortage in my understanding if I haven't had relationships with white people. Mm. There has to be, right? Yeah. So in that sense, I don't think it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there is no real drive and motivation for me to have to do it. Yeah. Especially when the potential cost can be quite high. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if I'm thinking about it in terms of cost. It's just I love my friends, friend groups mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. I love the solidarity I feel with various, of course, Asian community, but various communities of color. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I completely understand that. The incentive to do that, like, especially especially if your main motivation for doing it would be some kind of like academic exercise in terms of understanding race, right? Like right. if you are happy <laughs> with your friends and you like how you feel with your friends and like your time and your energy is already so limited, what incentive do you have to like go out and make make white friends? And at this point, I, I, I feel like I don't have the toolkit or the fluency or the language to really form meaningful relationships with white people. I honestly feel that way. That's so interesting you should say that. I feel like you have the toolkit to make friendships with a certain kind of white person who is like very fluent in race, who is very conscious of their own power and privilege and cares about dismantling these things. Right. Sorry. When I say when I say white person, I'm talking about run-of-the-mill white person, not woke white person. Right, right, right. Because yeah, and I, I, I totally resonate with that. And the white people that I have in my life are those people. So I don't know that I have a great handle either on what whiteness, what the white experience is, which is, I'm just saying that out loud is so funny. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking about how people talk about the Asian experiences, though. It's like a monolith anyway. So similarly, I don't know a single white person who didn't vote for Obama. I don't know a single white person who voted for Trump. So even though I have white people in my networks by default because of where I grew up and where I live now, I still don't know that I know all that much about whiteness in America, at least firsthand. And then one of the statistics they shared in this podcast episode was that 75% of white people have no friends of color, 
which is a data point that was went around quite a lot before the 2016 election, I remember. Robert P. Jones. Our friend Robert Jones. That is such a crazy statistic. It is. Because what that means is that people like us are disconnected, completely disconnected from the majority of people who live in America. It was crazy. The yeah. world that we live in, I don't think that there's any average American experience or whatever, but like the worlds that we live in are very, very different from the reality of a whole lot of people here. And I, I, right. I forget that all the time. If some other person from some other non-American came and asked what was going on in this country, I would be inclined to say, I have no idea, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think part of it is this piece is that I really have not built or have the capacity or the tools to be able to create meaningful, deep relationships with the majority of people in this country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it's so interesting, too, because then I can hear, again, the non-existent average white person being like, oh, but isn't progress dependent on us connecting with people who are different from us? And the answer to that is yes, but it also people who talk like that often forget, too, that when it comes to friendships with white people, the power differential makes it so that we're often in the place of having to educate. I'm not super interested in being someone's friend for the sake of their own education. It's tricky because I do feel a burden to be an educator or a liaison of some kind, but I feel way more comfortable doing that in my professional life than in my personal life. Yeah, totally. And you know, at least you have that professional piece. Yeah. We really are just scratching the surface of this. We end every conversation that way. So I would like to not end the conversation that way, but I feel like it's true. It's really true in this this case. Like this is going to be a topic that we have to revisit because this is something that Asian Americans have to think about a lot given how yeah. few of us there are here relatively speaking. Yeah. So, let's definitely come back to this another time. In the meantime, we have a top 5 to discuss. I love this top 5. Our top 5 today is ways that we're turning into our parents. I and both love love and dread. I know, I know, I know. I am so excited to hear your list though. <laughs> Would you like to go first? I'll go okay. first. My number five is that I totally drive like my mom. What does this mean? She taught me how to drive. It wasn't like this dad-son moment, which means that I she she's a cautious, defensive driver. Uh-huh. And I didn't know that I was also a cautious and defensive driver until we were in the car together. And it was funny because I was driving to the destination one way and then she drove back uh-huh. and it occurred to me that we were both backseat driving each other oh my God. and we we're making the exact same comments to each other. <laughs> You're going faster than the flow of traffic. You're not giving enough space in front of the car in front of you. You should be checking your mirrors more often. Something like this. Oh my God. And friends have made comment that I, I do drive very cautiously, I guess, or something. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how my mom drives. Okay. I mean, chalk one up for pre-dad. <laughs> Safety first. Safety first. Oh my god. Oh my god. When we were when we were in DC and I was cutting something, I was chopping something and you were like, "Be careful." And I was like, "Oh my god, what is happening right now?" That's only my parents coming out. <laughs> Thanks for that. No problem. You're welcome. <laughs> my number 4, I feel like I'm adopting very similar values around money. Mm. Think it's not like big term investment strategy type stuff, but it's about Asian culture stuff about like fighting over the bill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I find myself doing that and I'm not quite sure why I do that or where that came from. They have this fear of appearing cheap in front of other people. Uh -huh. So, you know, things like if you show up at a guest's house, I cannot show up empty handed. Yeah. 
you know, you always have to buy something and it's, you spare no expense about stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this whole thing about these unwritten rules around reciprocity. I think we've talked about it on this podcast, but it really yeah. comes from my parents. Uh-huh. And at the same time, they have these stereotypically cheap moments where they're recycling Ziploc bags 10 times or <laughs> refusing to pay $2 for parking at a more convenient lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is another thing I do. They'll buy really, really expensive appliances and a $400 rice cooker, right? Uh-huh. And I feel like if that thing breaks... Anytime within the five years, people would at least attempt to try to fix it. Mm -hmm. My parents' attitude is it's time for another new appliance, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And I have adopted all of these strange, illegible values around money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. I like your use of the word illegible because it would not I, – I, I feel that way about several of my money rules as well. It doesn't make sense to anyone else, but it makes perfect sense to me, and I cannot explain to you why. It's just it's just something that I took over from my parents. Yes, yes you just intuited you, – you they intuited it, and now you intuit the way they do. Yeah, especially this idea of making sure you, you're not being that cheap guy the one yeah. that's like all hung up on you know oh we split the bill and i get two dollars and fifty cents back or something uh-huh uh-huh yeah that is just anathema to them and it is also anathema to me yeah my number three is that i have this unusual focus on digestive health now my gosh <laughs> this is a very i i acknowledge that this may not just be my parents but this may be just a korean thing because the incidence of stomach cancer is very high in korea it might be like a genetic pool thing. My mom has been on my case to get a colonoscopy since I was like 25. Yeah. And now that I'm 35, I'm totally buying it. Like I think yeah. on my next doctor's appointment, I'm, I think the recommended thing is like for men at age 50 to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's just unheard of for me. I'm like, I'm going to do it at 35 and I'm probably going to do one more often than, than the regular average person. Yeah. I've totally bought in now. Mm. My mom told me about this probiotic that they're selling at Costco, and I'm super excited to go buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, we actually had, like, a 20, 30-minute talk about it yesterday. Like, what does it do? How much does it cost? Uh-huh. It's totally worth it. What a great product. What's the brand? What's the competitors? We had this whole conversation. I'm like, who am I? What have Amazing. I become? Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> uh, my number two is I have this... More so than when I was a kid, I have this like particular sense of risk now mm-hmm. that is very much from my parents. Mm-hmm. I'll give you just one example. My mom always used to tell me that when you are at the end of your journey, when let's say like I used to drive from LA to Orange County all the time, fighting through traffic and all these big freeways to get home. Uh-huh. It's always that once you get off the exit ramp and you're on your way, you're home in your neighborhood. Uh-huh. That's the time to be the most careful. Interesting. Because that is when you are more likely to let your guard down. Oh, because you're not vigilant anymore because you're not on the freeway. That's right. Interesting. And it makes it makes sense to me. And so I little things like that, I can't name a lot of examples, but but there were like it'll come up and I'm like, ah, that's from my parents. Hmm. And I find myself unconsciously telling my friend, you know, like when you were cut doing the cutting board. That is totally my parents. Uh-huh. Being like, pay attention to what you're cutting right now. So it's like if you're driving home, I'd be like, make sure when you get off that exit ramp that you keep up your vigilance. Amazing. So my number one has to do with restaurant culture and standards and etiquette. Okay. My parents have owned a restaurant since 1985. Wow. 
And, you know, they've been through countless health inspections. They've trained countless wait staff. So mm-hmm. when they go into another restaurant, their eye is just, there's a health violation over there. Wow. There's a health violation over there. And they have this, and particularly my mom, my, my for my dad, this side comes out of him only in Korean restaurants for whatever reason. Like he's a very happy-go-lucky guy, mm-hmm. but at Korean restaurants, he's so difficult to the wait staff. Mm-hmm. If they don't come with something immediately, he gets really upset and it like ruins the meal for him. Mm. And he's not like that in any other context except mm-hmm. in Korean restaurants. Which is so interesting because your parents don't own a Korean restaurant. No, they don't. They own an IHOP. Korean. So there's this whole other culture in Korean restaurants that I've seen it done well. I know what it's like to have be done well. And there's this whole other thing with in Korean restaurants. It might shock people who aren't part of that. You're literally shouting at Wait, wait, staff across the restaurant to be like, hey, can you get this? Mm-hmm. Hey, bring that. And it's very, it sounds like orders. And then the wait staff are like, yes, 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 it's coming. Like it's, it's not received in a disrespectful way. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes my dad gets into trouble, and I think he's gotten better at this. But when I was younger, he's gotten trouble at non-Korean restaurants, like American restaurants, where he's like shouting at waiters to be like, bring me this, you know. Uh-huh. And it's like we'd have to tell him like, chill, you know, chill, chill, chill. Yeah. But uh, with my mom, my mom and I have the very same sense of really, really, really good wait staff. Uh-huh. So 90% of the time, the wait staff doesn't really register any kind of reaction from us. They, they're they usually fine or not fine or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But there are like these subtle moments, subtle things about waiters when they're really, really good or inviting or just really, really good. Mm-hmm. We both look at each other and we make a comment. We're like, oh, she's really good. Nice. Like we, <laughs> we have the same sense of them. And at the same time, it's not like wait stuff that are really, really particularly bad, but there's just something about some people that d- does just rubs us the wrong way. It rubs us the, ro- the, the wrong way in the same way. Hmm. I don't know how to explain it other than that, but it, again, 90% of the time it doesn't register a reaction, but that for whatever reason, we have the same sort of weird antenna about hmm. this stuff. That's yeah. super interesting. I am still yeah. stuck on what you said at the beginning of this point about when they go into a restaurant, they are registering everything. And I have never thought about the fact that when you are when you own a restaurant, you you can't fully enjoy just going to a restaurant. You you can you can if the restaurants run properly. I mean, perfectly, basically. Because if yeah. not, you are constantly going to register like, ooh, that's a problem. Ooh, that's a problem. Ooh, that's a problem. It's like how people who like filmmakers have a very hard time like immersing themselves in film. That's true. That's true. Films, unless yeah. they're immaculate. Because otherwise, you just notice all the mistakes. So I have a f- particular friend group where we've gone out to eat a lot in New York, and they call me Papa Chris at uh-huh. restaurants <laughs> because he, they do recognize your dad identity. No, no, it's not. It's not so much my dad identity. It's this persona that comes out in restaurants because I walk into a restaurant. It's not just health violations, but it's also okay. Our group, particularly people of color, young looking, we've been waiting here for thirty minutes, and this other group came in. And they get seated first or we get seated and this other group that's more senior looking or white or whatever, they get served their food a good 20 minutes before we do. I notice all of those things and I always point it out, like I always call over the manager to be like, hey, that's not right. I don't feel bad doing it. Uh I feel bad because it makes my friends for whatever reason uncomfortable. Sure, sure. But I'm like... No, we sat down a good 20 to 30 minutes before this table did and they're getting their food first. What's up with that? 
Yeah. Well, yeah. then how does the manager respond to you when you do that? On one occasion, he went back and he found, he looked into it and he found that our food was stuck on the conveyor or whatever. They forgot about it. Uh-huh. And so they were like, yeah, we're going to just knock off 20% of the check. Nice. And for me, it's again, like there's this whole etiquette around that because my parents have had numerous scenarios where they're like, is this a full, fully comped meal? Is this a, like a pay for the dessert sort of situation? Is this an apology but not pay for anything? There are so many nuances in how you deal with customer complaints. Right, right, right. I've seen my parents, for example, pay the full bill intentionally and then complain because they don't want to be perceived as asking for something free and that's why they're doing it. But then there are other scenarios where it's appropriate that they do take something off. And there are these very subtle situations on how to deal with that they're very attuned to. And I'm very attuned to those things as well. That's super interesting. I ask because I also get super annoyed about that. And it's not just restaurants, but if I'm in a waiting room at a doctor's office and like somebody else arrives, there's only one doctor and someone else arrives later, but is seen first. It drives me crazy because I think it's like this weird obsession with justice that I have. (laughs) But then I never know what to do with it. So now I know that I can tell a manager and it might be embarrassing for other people, but we might get comped in some way. Restitution might be made. Restitution. And sometimes it's not about the thing being paid or compensated. It's just about the act of, I think you should know this. Yes. Yeah. And it's not about the money because my parents hate it when customers complain and it's so clearly about getting an entire meal paid for. Right, right, right. right? Yeah. Again, going back to the money thing, they're like, that is cheap, low class behavior. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> That's my top five. Ugh, I love it. I love it. Oh my god! It, it was secretly a joy to put this one together. <laughs> I totally know what you mean. The self dragging yeah. is painful, but also delightful. Gotta own it. Gotta own it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. What's your top five? Okay. Uh, my number five is I hate waste of all kinds. Food, mm. money. Any energy, I hate when, I think it's just because my parents are immigrants. If thing, if energy or effort or time or anything is, is exerted that didn't need to be, I get unnecessarily upset about it. So I am the person who has two bites of food left. And instead of eating it or letting it go, I pack it because I might want a tiny snack later. I Target has a one-year guarantee on all of their children's clothes that they will last a year. And so when my kids' pants got holes in them after three months, you better believe that I had every tag saved and every receipt saved and I'm taking them back to Target to get my money back because that's unacceptable and that's wasted money on my part, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, wow. Interesting. Interestingly, my parents are getting more chill about this in their old age. I don't know about yours, but I feel like my parents are relaxing finally now that they've been here for like 40 plus years. And so sometimes they look at me and they're like, yo, you need to chill out. And I was like, I don't know who you are, but my immigrant (laughs) parents never have allowed this. You know, what's funny is that I think this could also be on my list. Actually, my parents are the opposite. They're very quick on the trigger in terms of throwing things away. Interesting. I'm very quick on the trigger too. Usually you can put something in the fridge and it'll be okay for at least three days. If it's there more than one night, it's out. That's bananas to me. Yeah. No, my parents, I don't know if this is a cultural difference or what, but my parents, we saved everything. Nothing was wasted. Yeah. Even like little bites of food. My dad, even that my dad was full, be like, before you throw that away, I'll just eat it because we can't, we can't have that. So that's my number five. My number four, I have piles of stuff all over my house 
of random catalogs, alumni magazines, other ephemera <laughs> that I say that I will get to, even though my history gives zero indication that I will ever get to them. <laughs> it's just impossible. Try as I might to get my workspace clean. I always, whenever I'm cleaning, I have a pile of things. I'm like, oh yeah, I can look at that tonight. I never do. And I should just accept this about myself, throw all that stuff away. But no, I want to look at it. What if something important's in there? And that I also attribute directly to my parents because my in-laws have a spotless counter all the time. And my yeah. parents' house is just covered in piles of <laughs> mail. This could be this be, could be the same thing about the waste, right? Very similar. I think it maybe comes from a similar immigrant. This could be important, like a yeah. hoarder thing. Yeah. That's real. I feel sorry for my spouse sometimes because I think he's just like, God, you're never going to look at it. You know what I mean? He, he's waiting <laughs> to ever say that to me, but I can just see his hesitation when he's like, do you still want to look at this? And I'm like, oh yeah. And he just slowly puts it down again. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, every like once every five years, I'd say the thing that you save does come in handy. That's the thing. It's just often enough that it reinforces the behavior for years. Every now and then something in that pile of stuff is relevant. There's a coupon that saves us $20 or something. And I'm like, see, aren't you glad that I still have this pile of shit here? So that's my number four. My number three, we've spoken about this in the past. I douse my face in sunscreen, rain or shine, as of July of last year. And I tell everyone I know to do the same because wrinkles are coming for us all. Yeah. My mom has been on my case about sunscreen for as long as I can remember. And I was just like, no, 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 this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. Until wrinkles came for me, which we've discussed in the past. But now I'm religious about sunscreen. Number two, my Ann Arbor friends and I have a messenger thread where we talk about pretty much everything. But deals that we found at Costco are a significant portion of this messenger thread. Did you see that Costco is selling melon bars now? Did you see that Costco has Hunter boots for $90? Wait, wait, wait. Are they really selling melon bars? Our Costco was. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And like an amazing price. It was $18 for like $9.99. What? Way better than the Korean market. I'm going tomorrow on my way to the airport. You know how things like come and go at Costco real quick? Yeah. I would call them first. Okay. But it was an incredible price. And actually, they're popsicles, so they're probably not in season right now. So check back in the spring. Can I be part of this thread that you guys are on? <laughs> Happily, I will relay yeah. the messages to you. But yeah, anyway, we talk about it all the time, which is exactly what my mom and her friends do. And sometimes I will run out that day to get the deal. Those Hunter boots, I was like, I need boots. And that's an incredible deal for a high class product or like a, yes. like a high quality product. So I ran out and got them and I have no regrets. And my number one, I go to Target constantly, but I make special trips four mornings a year. The morning after Halloween, Christmas, Valentine's Day, and Easter. And I buy wow. every bag of seasonal Dove dark chocolate in the store because it is my <laughs> This is so specific and totally unexpected. Tell me more. I live between two Targets, so I go to both. Wow. And some, it's hit or miss. Sometimes they're completely sold out. Sometimes there are 20 bags left and I buy all of them. Wow. It all evens out and that's my chocolate stash for the year because I do not want to spend full price for chocolate. Seasonal chocolate, though, goes on sale the day after the holiday 
and you can save so much money if you buy it that way. Wow. And if that was not something that I inherited from my immigrant Taiwanese mother, I mean, that's that's the peak of it. That's the epitome of it. That totally encapsulates it. Yeah. So on Saturday morning, it's on my calendar. Two trips to Target. That is a fantastic, fantastic number one. Thank you. Thank you. So all this to say that I'm about 75% of the way of turning into her, and I can either fight this short curly perm that's coming my way, or I can embrace it. <laughs> what should we talk about next time, Chris? Well, I'm still in the le- the afterglow of the Oscars. I went through that thing where every time they show a movie I haven't even heard of, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch that. I want to watch that. I want to watch that. So I'm still in that movie phase. Okay. So why don't we do another movie-themed one? Let's do top five of our life-changing movies. I love this because it is not the same as favorite movies. No, life-changing. It has to have changed your life. Okay. I can't wait. This was fun. This was fun. I still don't know how to do this one. (laughs) Let's do it again sometime. See you in two weeks.